guys are here, again, whether you enjoy football, maybe you hate football, maybe your team's playing, maybe like me, you're a, a fan of a team that's not that good, that's not going to be playing <coughs> Redskins. But you should still come out tomorrow night. What did I say? Eagle Harbor in there, and it's Founders Point. My wife and I just moved to this area. We're still getting used to it, all right? It's at Founders Point at the Nowatney's household. There are flyers out there at the Information Center with the address on it. It's at the Nowatney home. There's multiple screens. So there's going to be maybe a, a screen for the series folk, and then the people that are just there to watch commercials and talk to each other, there'll be another screen for that. And then there's a third screen outside for people that really enjoy the cold. So whatever you're doing, but just any Panthers fans in the building? A couple? Hey, no, I saw two. Any Broncos fans in the building? Yeah, see. These are not a lot of, like, low. I can see Carolina, but me, I'm just in the camp that's like, I just want a good game. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. So we have a staff member, though, at City Life, who remain nameless, for anonymity's sake, who weeks before the playoffs finds a team to root for. Just weeks before the playoffs start, he's like, all right, they're going to be in the playoffs, and I like this player, this player, and this player. So he... He, he doesn't just adopt them as his team. He's, like, commenting on Facebook, like, go Panthers, right, cheering on Cam Newton. And, of course, me, like, you can't do that. He's bandwagoning, right? But, of course, you know, he is way more satisfied, happy as a person right now than a lifelong D.C. sports fan like myself. The Redskins and Wizards, it's a miracle Jesus heals that I can even watch football or basketball without a twitch or, or crying. But, again, I just want a good game on Sunday. Um, shout out to Sean McDermott, though. I'm a William Mary graduate. He is the defensive coordinator for the Panthers. He will be a head coach next year. But I'm not showing up tomorrow in Panthers gear, head to toe, because to me, that's bandwagoning, right? And, and, and we frown on bandwagoning because, you know, you should be loyal. But that's part of human nature. We want to be able to identify with something, whether it's a team or a person or an organization or an institution, that's good that we can identify with. What are some things in life that you identify with? Or maybe you don't, but you see people they identify with, it gives them meaning, gives them purpose. Maybe it just gives them enjoyment. It might be a band. You might be a believer, whatever. What are some things you identify with in life? Or somebody else does if you want to throw them under the bus. Dustin. Your job. Find identity in your job. Worship music. Peanut butter. Just a fan of peanut butter. Okay. <laughs> a peanut butter club. You really identify with it. Anybody else? I, things you identify with. Oh, Apple or Android, right? The competition. Anything else? What's that? Got you. Yep. Yep. Oh, but there's everything from political parties to sports teams to, again, musicians that you, you might be in a Facebook group with, but you identify with that thing. And what institution feeds us identity and belonging before any other in life? It's family. Family gives you belonging. You find your identity in family. And tonight we're going to talk about the family of faith. And as believers and, and as followers of Christ, that should be a part of our identity. That, that, that the church, that the family of faith is a part of who we are. We've been in this series as we, we launch here called Welcome Home. We're pulling from Jeremiah 29. Part of a scriptural witness that we are aliens, we're, we're, we're travelers, we're just passing through. We are exiles, and yet in that, God calls us to find a home in the church. Our hope for a taste of heaven in this life is with God's people, the church. And in Jeremiah 29, he passes on this outline to the exiles of how they can find a home even amidst exile. 
And I want to turn to this passage. It's Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. And it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So from the New Testament perspective that we live in, when we look back at Jeremiah 29, when we look back at this passage, we realize that we are in exile as we walk our, our witness in our age. Yet we are called to be at home as a part of God's people, his church. We may be in exile, but God has a home for us. And Jeremiah 29.47 sets the context for everyone's favorite verse, Jeremiah 29.11. It was probably one of those typography pictures over a pretty photograph on your Facebook feed. Sometime this week that had Jeremiah 29.11 on it, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And as we addressed last week with this verse, context is key. Because how often do we see this verse applied to the individual, right? I've seen this tattooed on, on a guy's rib cage, right? How many times do we apply this verse to a, a person who's maybe trying to make a tough decision in life? Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I take this job opportunity or turn it down? And we, we, we tell them, hey, God has a hope and a future. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but we apply it like that because we read through the lens of our culture where the favorite subject matter is often me, right? But so often... We read it that way, but the Bible is first and foremost about Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's about his people. So the you in Jeremiah 29, 11, if you're into English, I'm not, this is elementary English. That is not a singular noun. That is a plural noun. That is not a me. That is a we. That's a community of individuals that he is addressing that's longing to pursue and worship their God. They're hoping for future redemption. And in our New Testament perspective, again, this is the family of faith. And so often we desperately cry out to God for the plans he has for us. And so often it's bigger than us. It's about Jesus, his church, his kingdom. Now, does, does God care about every detail of your life? Absolutely. God knew where your keys were, where you were looking for them before service. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows about every detail of your life, and he cares about every detail of your life. But why does he do that? You read Matthew 6. Right? It says, don't worry about the food you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear because God's going to provide that for you. Why? So that you can seek first the kingdom. You can seek first the church, God's people you're called to be a part of. We talked about it last week. If your faith is solely inward focused, then it's out of focus. And so over these weeks, as we talk about being welcomed home into a family of faith, we're going to talk about three ways that our, our focus gets shifted as we become a part of this family. And if your faith is inward focused, then there's three ways we need to look. We need to look around, we need to look out, and we need to look up. Tonight we're going to talk about looking around. We're going to talk about family. That we're called to look around to the people around us. That we're supposed to, to build community, build relationship with. We're going to be talking about the pathways of, of gathering of accountability, of relationship. And if you're asking, what are the pathways? We broke that down last week. You can do the podcast or you go to citylifeva.com. They're prominent on that page. But there's essentially disciplines we're called to walk in. 
So we're going to talk today about family and looking around. But then next week we're going to talk about looking out. Jesus said look out to the harvest fields. He said don't pray for the harvest. Pray for people to go out and work the harvest. Right? He says there's work for you to do. Again, you're not called to sit here and accept Jesus and then wait for him to come back and just take up space. There's a purpose and a destiny and a calling that we all walk in and it's part of our work. And then lastly, we're called to look up. In Jeremiah 29, he could have told them to rage against the system or, or try to get out from under the oppression. But it, there's almost like, again, we talked about it last week. It's almost like settle down, a sedentary lifestyle. It's almost like little house on the prairie while they're in exile. But he's saying, look, I carried you here. He says it in that passage. You can rest in me. You can trust in me because I'm sovereign. I carried you into exile and I'm watching over you. And in the same way in our lives, we can rest. So family, work, and rest. There are three elements of a healthy household. There are also three elements that should be found in our home in exile, the church. So we look around. And if you look around in scripture, you realize that God gave his only child so that he wouldn't be an only child. Look at John 3.16. He says he gave his only son. But you read Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.5 says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Romans 8 said that Jesus would be the firstborn among many sons and daughters. God is building a family. It's been his plan since the beginning. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. But one thing you are not is an only child. You're not an only child. And sometimes I think we feel like it. Again, last week we talked about this gnawing in our, in our gut that reminds us that something's not right. And we talked about how that not right is, is exile. That we've been exiled from Eden. And part of that is alienation from the relationship that we were created to have with God. But that's just the first step. There's also alienation psychologically where we suffer from fear, shame, guilt. The things you see Adam and Eve wrecked with as they were hiding from God. We suffer alienation socially. You see in the curse, the, the, the just alienation, the, the wedge that's driven between Adam and Eve and as they shift blame back and forth in that story in Genesis. All human problems since are basically symptoms, and separation from God is the cause. Again, we talked about last week, home that we're called to be restored to is relationship with God. And God wanted to rectify all that through Jesus Christ. Last week, we hit on Ephesians 2.13 that says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you who were once alienated, you who were once exiled, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So tonight, I want to dig deeper into that passage. Dig deeper into this statement. It's Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 15 that I want to look at. As I was studying this week, I saw one theologian who said that it's perhaps the single most significant text on the church in the New Testament. Paul says, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of his promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. We see the far becoming near, outsiders becoming insiders, two becoming one and we begin to see that the vision God has is way bigger than just a bunch of individuals getting saved. 
He wanted to create a family where he is the father and we're the family. Salvation may happen in the life of the individual, but its purpose is for relationship. Again, our home is relationship with God, but you can't separate relationship with God from the relationship with fellow believers he calls us to. I read this quote a long time ago. It's anonymous. I think Philip Yancey was the person who quoted it. But it says, to dwell in love with saints above, why that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, why that's a different story. Right? To dwell in love with saints above, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, that's a different story. Because in our flesh, we're not, we're not always driven to unity. We're not always driven to it. But there are two factors in our flesh that can fracture the family God calls us to. The first is individualism. It's a theme in our culture and in our Western culture, in our modern culture. That's about, again, me, my favorite subject matter, myself. You want to have a, a successful conversation with somebody, ask them about themselves. We all love to talk about ourselves. But there's two fruits of this that have become, in my opinion, idols in the church. The first is the idol of experience, where we value what we do and how it makes us feel over what the word of God says. So there's the idol of experience, and then we see a second fruit, which is the idol of consumerism. We look to the church to give us our needs rather than to give ourselves to community. God doesn't exist to serve me. I exist to serve God and to do it through his church and to do it through his word. But even when we step out of individualism, we can still get trapped in division. Because we don't drift towards different. We drift towards the same. We drift towards homogenous units of people that think alike, do alike. You don't have to look much further than, than Sunday services or Saturday services if you're cool. But Sunday services where it's a bunch of people who look like and act alike. And part of that is natural. You're going to drift towards that again. And not all that is bad. Worship how it's going to feed you. Go where you're going to grow. But while differentiation is necessary to identity as humans, we have a tendency to create barriers. We have a tendency to, to create division. Starts young. What was it, Apple and Android? That's like the adult, you know, battle. As a kid, for me, I collected comics. It was DC versus Marvel, right? I was a Marvel guy. DC had Batman, and in my opinion, nothing else worthwhile, right? I, I was going to collect Marvel comics. I don't think I own a DC comic. I still got Marvel comics all over my garage. So that's probably just waiting for me to get rid of them, right? But not both. And then Nike and Adidas, and if you were... At our <laughs> income bracket as a kid, and one from J.C. Penny, right? All those are cool brands, but you can wear those at the same time. Just this unspoken rule as a kid that, that no, 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 you can't do that. that. There's a division, but see, distinction, identity, it doesn't need to lead to division. But the the media loves division. Steph and I used to have cable when we first got married, and and I used to watch PTI. Pardon the interruption. And it's, it's no different than, like, First Take or any of these other sports shows where they're just debating back and forth. Sometimes it gets loud. Steph will be preparing dinner, just leaning and be like, why are they yelling at each other about sports? And I like because that's what our culture loves. We love division. We love tit for tat, back and forth, debating things. But God works in the opposite direction. God works to unite. You read all the different headings of that passage we just read in Ephesians 2 in different translations. It says unity in Christ, one in Christ. Oneness and peace in Christ. You look at the verses. Verse 14 says he made the two one. Verse 15 says to create in himself one new man out of the two. Verse 16 says in this one body to reconcile both of them. Verse 18 says we both have access to the Father in one spirit. God works towards unity. 
Ephesians 2 asks us to remember where home is. Home is relationship with God. But if you go back to Jeremiah 29, even the Israelites in exile in Jeremiah 29, they could taste a taste of their spiritual home if they pursued relationship with God and followed his instruction. And it's funny, you read Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, anytime God repeats something in Scripture, it perks my ear because usually it's important. And in that passage, twice, it says, marry and have sons and daughters. Marry and have sons and daughters. You're born into family. The first two decades of your life, for, mo- for better or worse, for longer or for shorter, it's decided for you who you're going to be living with. You get one time in your life where I'm going to live with this person for the rest of my life. It's marriage. So wedding is the culmination of that. A wedding where two become one. Just like echoing Ephesians 2. But weddings, they're a shared celebration. From the planning to the bachelor party and the bachelorette party to the night of to the reception. It's all planned. It's a community event where a bunch of people are there. Steph and I got married about five and a half years ago. There were like 350 to 400 people there. We're both parts of our church. Both of our churches were there. There were people there from grandparents to pastors to uncles to people that had counseled us to friends, classmates, all these different people we'd cried with, we'd gotten correction from, we'd got encouragement from, we'd laughed with. Before they ever got invited to the wedding, they were invited into our lives. Now, I just came out of youth ministry. So you better believe I had a lot of teenagers like, hey, I'm thinking about dating so-and-so. So what do you think? What should I do here? There was a lot of advice, right? But one of the things was, hey, your wedding's going to be a community event. Make sure your relationship has community. Make sure your relationship has accountability. Make sure your relationship has people around you speaking wisdom into it. Because plans fail for lack of counsel. <laughs> your relationship will fail for lack of community and counsel in it. And again, we talked last week about how in heaven there's going to be the wedding between the bride of Christ and and Jesus Christ the groom. And our relationship with Jesus in this life is supposed to be the same way. There's supposed to be community. There's supposed to be people pouring into us. We're talking tonight about gathering. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about accountability. Your relationship with Jesus should be intensely personal but never private. Right? We're called And you might not fail, but you will certainly flounder if you forsake accountability, if you forsake relationship and getting rooted with people, and you forsake gathering and coming together to worship with other people. So it says marry and then have sons and daughters. And it's funny. I see Mike Blevins here. The question you hear probably more than anything else in senior high school is where are you going to college? What are you going to study? As soon as you graduate college, it's what are you going to do, right? You got a job your whole senior year. Where are you going to work? Then you're a bachelor. The question you get over and over again is when are you going to get married? I didn't start dating Steph till I was 25. So immediately, I'm dating her for two months. Hey, when are you going to put a ring on it? When are you going to get married? As soon as you get married, I get married, I'm 26, 27, 28, right? I'm, I'm 31 now. So there's people, when are you going to have a kid? When are you going to start a family? And then they want to be sly about it. They're like, hey, you guys are going to make really cute kids. So when are you going to do it, right? Like, when are you going to start a family? Because family is important. Family is beautiful. Family, a healthy family is the core of a healthy society. Because family is the school of love. It's where we understand the economy of love. To point our focus outward. To not be consumed with self, but to think, how can I serve this person or that person? Whether it's a sibling, whether it's your parent, whether it's an older or younger sister, whatever. And then as a family, being pointed out to society, our community, our culture. It's where we learn the economy of love. But Steph and I, just a moment of transparency, we haven't been able to have kids yet. 
So we're five and a half years married. We're two and a half years into an adoption process. And in that process, uh, we got to take a lot of video courses. I'm talking like 40-hour courses with tests at the end. We got to read a lot of books. And when you, I'm telling you, if every parent who ever was going to have a, have a kid took classes and read these books, <laughs> society would be better off. We've been schooled over and over again on parenting. But it's specifically parenting former orphans. Because in their lives, there's what's called a cycle of unmet need. Where they have a need, but it's not being met by anybody. So they just shut it down. You can walk into an, an orphanage in Ethiopia full of babies, and it will be silent. Because they've learned even if they cry, nobody's coming. So they just stop crying. So how does a parent build trust and relationship with their son or their daughter? You begin to meet those cycles of need. And all of a sudden, their heart opens up. They realize, this is my caretaker. This is somebody that loves me. But in the same way, there are people that live disconnected from church. There are people that live spiritually orphaned outside of the family of faith. And whether they realize it or not, there are cycles of unmet need in their lives. Because they're not a part of relationship or accountability or gathering. Those are three needs that are met in the family of God. And the first one I want to talk about is to connect. Relationship. So, I was telling somebody before service, I talked to a lot of people before service, I don't remember who, but my wife and I moved down here the end of last August, beginning of September. We love our new house. Our old house was like 99% carpet. My, our new house has tile floors on the downstairs. I never saw Risky Business because it was before my time, but that Tom Cruise slide into the living room order, I do that into every room. Steph can be like, hey, Justin, I need help moving this table, and I'll... Run, slide in. Dinner's ready, run, slide in. Finally, I'm, I'm doing sermon prep. It was last week at about 11 in the morning. I went to slide from my sermon prep to the bathroom, and I took an L. <laughs> I fell hard. I got to re-gauge the speed I do it at, but that doesn't surprise anybody who saw me almost take an L up here last week. But that's a rabbit, rabbit trail. Um, we love our new house. Our old house, again, was carpeted. You open the front door. It's one of the houses. The stairs are right in front of you. And the living room where everything is happening is right there when you walk in, which is great when your friends come over, when people you know come over. It's not so great at other times. One of my favorite memories from that home, one of my favorite memories from youth ministry was about a year ago at the Super Bowl party. Now, we have a Super Bowl party, and you got to understand there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of youth in our living room. It's not very big. So at any point, there's five people touching you. You got a foot in your armpit. There's like your foot's touching three different people. So if you have like a, a space, a bubble around you, you're, that's not your party. Probably youth ministry is not for you if you got a bubble like that. But so we're all packed in. There's dozens upon dozens packed like sardines in our living room. And come the second quarter about, in walks this guy. I would say probably in his 40s, had a little gray in his beard, and a, a half-smoked cigarette and a six-pack of Ice House. And all the kids look at each other like, that ain't my parent. I don't know if it's your dad, but it ain't my dad. And, of course, I'm in charge. I always feel the responsibility. All these kids' parents are trusting me. So I get up, start jumping over kids to be yet welcoming, yet intimidating, with leaning more towards intimidating. Be like, who are you? Why are you here with a six-pack of Ice House in my living room with a half-smoked cigarette? And it didn't take any next-level discernment to realize that that wasn't going to be his first ice out that he drank that night. Um, so he was like, is this Jeremy's? And Jeremy's is my neighbor's. Jeremy is about my age, maybe a little older. No teenagers ever in his house. And we're like, no, his house is next door. And our houses aren't even laid out the same. And yet he was confused. 
kept looking at the kids, looking at me and say, seriously? It was like, seriously, but with an A. Became a hashtag the entire youth group kept using. But, but we had to explain to him, yes, you are in the wrong house. And it took him minutes to just figure it out and to sink in because had to work through the inebriation. But we finally escorted him to the other house. And one of the things that we love about our new house is that it has a foyer. You don't just walk into the action. There's a room where you can sit down, take off your shoes, get greeted, welcomed or unwelcomed. If you're a guy with a six-pack of ice house and a cigarette that you've halfway smoked, my, room is, my house is full of kids, right? But we have a foyer. Connects the entrance to the heart of the home. And in the church, if we were going to make this an analogy, the foyer would be the weekend service. The weekend service is where you get your bearings, you recognize if you're at the right place, you might learn a couple names, you shake hands, you're greeted. Yet plenty of people walk in and out of service without never really getting rooted in relationship. And you know what, sometimes that's on the church. They come in, they leave, nobody shook their hands, nobody introduced themselves. That happens with us, shame on us. But sometimes people are completely content with that. See, the next step would be the living room, which is life groups, going to dinner after service, community, really connecting with people, growing relationship. There's a connection you're called to. It's the work of relationship because it takes work. So Anthony announced it. I want to say it was announced in the video announcements, and I'm going to announce it. We have life groups coming up. Find one. Maybe it doesn't pique your interest, but you should be interested in finding community. You should be interested in building relationships. So find one. I believe the information is out on the information center or whoever's there can point you to these handouts that have the information for the life groups. Get rooted. Again, I think Anthony hit on it. This, this, This quote that Fred dropped in the video announcements last week. I wish he wouldn't have dropped it. He would have just told me. I would have made it my own. But he says, the enemy doesn't care if you go to church and you're a part of a crowd. He cares if you go to church and you become a part of a community. Come on, so let's get rooted. We talked about last week about the redwood trees. 300 feet tall, the height of a football field, and yet their roots don't go deeper than a basketball hoop. These are trees that have been around since Jesus walked the earth, and yet they don't have deep roots. They have roots that go out horizontally for almost over an acre. And over hundreds of years, the roots will fuse together with other redwood trees, and they will hold each other down. And again, like we talked about last week, in our life, we're passing through. We're exiles. We're just sojourners. And yet, we're called to put out roots horizontally. Jesus says, hey, don't store things up where moth and rust can destroy. He's saying invest eternally. One of the ways you can invest eternally in this life is invest in people, invest in souls. And then as the church, invest in the people around us, the communities we're in. But I saw a speaker do this recently. He spent five minutes introducing somebody. You know, like you go to a conference or they have a guest speaker at a church and you want to introduce somebody. So you, you sing their praises for like five minutes. You talk about their wife, their kids, where they went to college, you know. All kinds of details of their lives. And this pastor did this for five minutes. Just went on and on about their dog and their kids, what schools they went to. And then he said, I don't even know this guy. I went on Facebook randomly, found somebody where I had no mutual friends with him, and I looked at his Facebook page for ten minutes. And his point was this. For some of us, that's the extent of our relationships. We know stuff about people, but we don't really know people. Psychologists say that knowing somebody is to reveal unseen things to one another. Feelings, things we're joyful about, things we're frustrated about, taking the the hidden things of the heart and laying them on the table. That's how you really get to know somebody. So my point with that is is get rooted. Some of you right now are on your phone trying to fix the privacy settings on your Facebook and Instagram. You're like, that's ridiculous. 
But invest in people. Invest in relationship. The public ministry of the word. Weekend services. Hopefully foundational, perspective-shaping truth that hopefully deepens your relationship with Christ. That's essential. But the private ministry of the word. General foundational truths that everyone has been hearing and applying them with specificity. Counseling people to understanding the practical life implications of what they've been learning. That's essential. Both private and public ministry, they aren't a luxury. They're essential to growth as a believer. And that takes community. That takes relationship. That takes connecting. You know, three big words in scripture are justification, adoption, which isn't, I guess, that big of a word. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. You know, justification, we're justified under the blood of Jesus Christ in a moment. And then we're supposed to be adopted into the family of faith. And then we're called to sanctification, looking more like Christ daily. Working towards Matthew 5, 48, where it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's going to take some work. It's going to take some time. But I believe some people never get as deep in sanctification as they need to because they skip adoption. They skip stepping into a family of faith. So they've been justified, and they might be getting sanctified, but there's a level of sanctification you will only reach if you step through adoption into the family of faith. Some people would say, well, it's me, myself, and Jesus. Those old Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. But you could be Jesus, my Lord, myself, and I. But you see, Jesus put the church in place for us as a gift for us. And to step out of it is to say, Jesus is my homeboy, but I'm smarter than Jesus because I don't need it, right? Me, myself, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses instruments. The Holy Spirit uses the word brought by people empowered by grace. The Holy Spirit will use community to arrest and counteract the default mode of my heart, which is me, myself, and I. And there's a paradox. You really want to get to know yourself? Lose yourself in relationship. Lose yourself in community. Because there are personal insights that are only a product of community. You want to, like, again, this is, this is dating advice. <laughs> you want to get to know the person you're dating, take them out in a group, a big old group of people, see how they interact. See how they interact when they're offended. See how they interact when, when they're in conversation. You want to have personal insight, lose yourself in community. It's a paradox, but it's true. One of those ways we do that is the second gift that breaks the cycle. It's confronting accountability. See, again, we talked about last week that we're in exile. It's already not yet. Jesus is resurrected, but we're not. He's ushered in the kingdom, but it's not yet fully present. We live now in light of a future reality, exiled, yet called to find a home in God's people, his church. And there's an already not yet in each one of us. Hebrews 10, 14, I can remember where I was sitting when I read it the first time, because it was so impactful to me. It says, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect those who are being made holy. And when you look at the word holy in the Greek, it's just talking about being made perfect. So he's made perfect those who are being made perfect. It's this already not yet tension in our lives. And every day I'm reminded by personal empirical evidence of the fact that I've not yet arrived. Right? Things that I think, desire, say, and do point to the fact that sin still wages war against me. And it would be the height of idiocy for me to think that I should just do life by myself. Because we all have an inner dialogue, talking about what we're doing, talking about why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. I was a bachelor, again, for like five to six years, so sometimes my inner dialogue becomes audible dialogue because I've lived alone for a while. But we all have an inner dialogue that says, this is how I'm doing, this is what's going on. Accountability says, hey, you, my friend, have permission to interrupt my inner dialogue 
and have tough conversations. Have those tough dialogues with me. Because our inner dialogue will skip, skip the tough dialogue. Our inner conversation will skip those tough conversations. But accountability says, hey, you have permission to speak into my life and speak things to me that I wouldn't say to myself. But see, our culture is experience addicted but accountability allergic. Many want transformation without submission. They want the Jeremiah 29:11 calling outside of a committed community. Many want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment, and they run the other way. See, the process of sanctification means making yourself vulnerable. And I'm not just talking about being transparent, because we talk all the time, well, maybe you don't, talk about keeping it real. Keeping it real is often, you know, just telling your feelings about somebody else and what they're doing. Keeping it real is just giving you liberty to, to talk about your feelings, how you feel about somebody else. But to actually take your own feelings, put them out on the table, and look at them and dissect them with accountability, that isn't always comfortable. See, the dirty secret of sanctification is it hurts. It hurts. The same kind of growing pains you have as a kid where you're growing and it hurts, I would have liked a couple more. But that laying in bed where your, your legs are aching, right, growing pains. It's the same way. As you grow in the faith, there will be periods where you're stretched. But if, if there's not those periods, you're probably doing it wrong. Again, we're all psychologically alienated with sin and with shame. And we hide those things. God wants to take those things and bring them out into the light. Sometimes we're not just struggling with sin and sh or guilt and shame. We're struggling with sin, piling on the guilt and shame. And God wants to take that and pull it out into the light. And one of the ways he delivers us from psychological alienation to guilt and shame is to have us step out of social alienation and to step into community. Look at the verbiage. God didn't come to cover up hostility. He came to destroy hostility. Another translation says he came to demolish it. There is a war going on inside of you and inside of me for our hearts. And we need all the warning, all the protecting, all the encouraging, rebuking, and growth-producing accountability we can get. You look at Ephesians 2, that, that passage we were reading, and what was that division that Paul was talking about? Racism between the Jews and the Gentiles. You look 2,000 years later at the church, and yet racism is still rooted in the church. Still needs to be addressed. And, and churches with no accountability will rarely walk in diversity because nobody ever confronts it. I've heard some people say, well, it would go away if we just don't talk about it. But racism is a sin issue. It's an issue of the heart. It's rooted in us. I just use that as an example because sin issues take accountability. They got to be laid out on the table and addressed. It was Jews and Gentiles in, in Ephesians. But you look at the Gospels, there were even more divisions, right? The, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those people. And you had the Pharisees that weren't helping the problem. They were exacerbating it. They had all the knowledge. They had most of the Bible memorized, but they had the wrong perspective. You can have all the right head knowledge and yet have the wrong perspective. You need voices speaking into your life with permission to readjust your perspective. Another reason you need to get involved in life groups is because the Birches are hosting one. Birches are awesome people. Can I just give Paul Birch a shout out? He spent late nights here setting stuff up. He's about to host a life group. And his wife, she has a blog, and I'm going to share from it, public domain. So it's the last couple sentences in there. This is the wisdom you can receive if you go to the life group. She had a, a blog called, Am I a Hoarder in God's House? She says, do you have friends that you allow to look in your spiritual closets? 
Are you willing to show them the hidden places in your house where you are cherishing secret sin? Don't continue one more day as a hoarder, this analogy that she had fleshed out at this point. Find someone in your life you can trust to share your clutter with and begin the process of eliminating that which detracts from the beauty of the house God is creating in you. I could have just read her blog and we would have been good. (laughs) But the heart of humility is one of the most important things to be birthed in a believer. It's one of the first things that needs to be birthed if we're ever going to walk in diversity. Because this heart of humility says, what else don't I know? Where else is my perspective off? I need help because I don't know. And if the church is ever going to overcome division with diversity, it's going to take a heart of humility, especially for the predominant culture to say, what else am I not seeing? What else don't I understand? Because we have blind spots that are behind us, and then we have blind spots that are right in front of us because we've never walked through it. But what we got to realize is there's a wealth of wisdom that empowers us. It gives us empowerment, but there is a wealth of perspective in this church that will produce empathy. One of the things that the church misses, being able to see what somebody's feeling, walk in their shoes for a moment. And if we ask questions, matter of fact, let's ask questions. Show of hands tonight. How many of you guys graduated high school and went right into the workforce? Just started grinding, making money, right? How many of you guys went to four years of college and then went to the workforce? My hand, right? How many of you guys, like, masters, maybe even further than that, and then went out into the world? I saw a pump fake, right? So all different people. See, why I'm doing this is there's this, this idea that Christianity, the church, only appeals to a certain group of people. But think about it. How many of you guys grew up in a, in a home with two parents, two biological parents? How many of you guys grew up in a home with only one biological parent, right, only that in the home? How many of you guys grew up in a home where you went to church, you were brought to church your childhood? How many of you guys went to a home where that wasn't a part of the norm? How many of you guys made a vowed devotion to Christ in your teenage years or younger? How many of you guys made a vow devotion to Christ 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond? Again, you look around the room. There's hands going up at all these different moments. And in the church, there's not just a wealth of wisdom that empowers you. There is a wealth of perspective that you can ask questions. You can, in humbleness, say, what else am I missing? There's people in here. Again, we, we go to life groups together. We go out to dinner together, not just for relationship, but for accountability. To have some voices in our lives where say, hey, your perspective is off. You need to think differently in this area. So come on, let's get rooted not just in relationship, but in accountability as well. Again, the wealth of wisdom produces empowerment, but a wealth of perspective produces empathy. We need both. We need relationship and we need accountability. And then lastly, we need gathering to continue. You know, people would always ask me, you know, have I laid out the vision for the church, right? Our vision is City Life's vision. We're one church and three campuses talking about how to pursue heaven now, heaven forever. But, you know, what do you want the church to look like in your community? And, of course, you just, you just immediately think, man, I want it to look like the book of Acts. And you ask people, like, how do you want to see God working? And we all point to Acts. Because this was the early church. You're seeing miracles. You're seeing people saved by the thousands. Like, if you're passionate about God's kingdom, you want that. But are we walking in community? Are we walking in gathering? You look at Acts 2. It says all the believers were together. It says every day they continued to meet together. We're talking like life group in a service, a couple times a week. So maybe for us it's every week they continue to meet together. Maybe it's every month they continue to meet together, but there's a continue. They kept gathering. Family will sustain you. Family will leave its mark. 
let's do this. I got a rabbit trail. My brother, <laughs> we're competitive. I have one brother. He's a couple years younger than me. We both wanted to, uh, I don't know why we're so passionate about it other than we're competitive, get the newspaper. And because I'm faster than him, I beat him to it. He's podcasting. I'll race you tomorrow. But uh, for some reason, he was no price between six and seven years old. I'm walking up to the house like a strut, right, with the newspaper. He picks up a rock. This kid could barely throw a football, right? He could barely throw a sports ball. Yeah, he, he threw the rock and threw the worst stroke of luck ever, left this huge gash in the side of my head. I almost had to get stitches. I still got a bump. And why do I say that? Because family members will leave a mark. Sometimes the immaturity of your family members will leave a mark. And in the church, sometimes we get hurt, but we don't give up on the institution of family. Let's not give up on the institution of the church. I went on that rabbit trail, told that story. Why did I do it? Oh, because family members also sustain each other. That same brother that threw that rock into the side of my head was texting me last week, calling me, how did the launch go, right? He was lifting me up in prayer. He was sustaining me. I do the same for him. He's now a, an elder in his church. It's crazy. He, 20 years ago, that wasn't in the car. So he was throwing rocks at the side of my head, right? But family members sustain each other. Gathering, continuing together, it sustains you. Family should also frame our worship. Worship should never be a production we watch. It should be an experience where we join together to communicate with God, to address him and be addressed through his word. No one in church should be able to walk in as an outsider and walk out again feeling like an outsider. I hope that's not the case for our church. May nobody who walks into our weekly services not feel welcomed home. Come on, may they feel welcomed home. Come on, let's have the worship team come up. We're going to bring the service to a, a close, but relationship, accountability, gathering. Three pathways that are a part of a healthy family that also need to be a part of a, a healthy believer that's in the family of faith. And now just real quick, how do we apply this? How do we walk this out? How do we exercise this? How does this change us tomorrow? How is this going to change me this next week? Here's just three perspectives, three things to remind yourself as you strive to walk in unity. The first is this, focus on each other's DNA, not your differences. See, my family coming up, we all love pizza. Matter of fact, if we did a show of hands here, I bet most of us like pizza. But if we were going to, yeah, he's throwing up his hand anyways. We can go get pizza after this. That'll be our community and getting rooted. But if we were to try to order one pizza with like four toppings on it, we, it would probably be World War III. I know for our family, six of us to come up with one pizza with toppings on it was crazy. And yet we all love pizza. That was in our family's DNA. What I'm saying is don't get caught up in preference. Don't get caught up in personality. Keep Christ at the center, and you will walk in unity. At our center, we're made in his image. At our center, we all love Jesus. That's at our common core. That's unity. So focus on DNA, not your differences. The second is to focus on one another's development, not deficiencies. Again, there's an already not yet that's active in all of us. That Hebrews 10, 14, I, I'm perfect in God's sight, but I'm still being made perfect. And to apply that to myself is liberating, right? To apply that to myself, I have peace when otherwise I might be stressed out and dealing with guilt and shame. But how often do we withhold that from people around us? Where we get focused on their deficiencies rather than their development. They might have been saved for two weeks, two months, two years, two decades, whatever. We're all still a work in progress. You can learn to focus on how people are growing rather than their deficiencies will walk in unity. And when they're not, there's accountability. But that's, we already went over that. And then lastly, this doesn't have two words that start with D, but 
focus on in inclusivity, not exclusivity. Being inclusive, not exclusive. Look at Romans 16, verse 1. Paul writes the church in Rome. He's sending this woman, Phoebe, to them. And he's saying, hey, accept her like family. Embrace her like family. He asks for them to embrace her as one of their own. And then he goes on in this letter to greet dozens of people who, if they were to look back, at one point were a Phoebe. At one point, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were all outsiders. We needed people to be welcoming and inclusive with us. Let's pass that forward. Let's push that forward. Let's return the favor. So if you've been disconnected in life, hopefully tonight you can say you feel welcomed home. Even if, again, we talked last week, maybe you're visiting and this isn't the church for you. Find a church that can be home where you can get rooted with other like-minded people and grow and go through the storms of life together where you might otherwise topple. You've got relationship. You've got community. You've got accountability. You've got the strength of gathering. Don't just step into any church. Step into one where you can grow. And don't just step into a building. Step into that relationship with Jesus Christ. Come on, if we could all stand as we're going to go back into worship. Christ stepped into exile so that we don't have to live in it. Right? We, we hit on this last week. But these passages about Jesus, we see in Philippians 2, Jesus left home in heaven, exiled on this planet. He, he was born far from his parents' home in Luke 2. Matthew 8, 20, he talks about how he was wandering without a place to rest his head. Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 reminds us that Jesus died outside the city gates, essentially exiled so that we could have freedom. We don't have to live in exile. He experienced exile so we don't have to. So tonight, come home. Come home. From the beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation, there's this invitation to come. Come on, as we step into worship, let's do just that. Again, we're talking about church, but maybe, we're talking about community, but maybe you've never made, again, a vow of devotion to Christ. Maybe you made it earlier when we were taking communion. If that's you tonight, find me while we sing. Let's pray together. Come on, let's get you resources and get you rooted so you can grow. But let's, let that be all our prayers. That I'm going to get rooted, and in that I'm going to bear fruit. And that's going to glorify and bring worship to God. But let's worship him with song in this moment.